July 9th, 2019, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Shupovit Gosh. He's the co-founder and managing director of the Computing Infrastructure Research Center, CIRC, at McMaster University. It was a great conversation. It was called Next Gen Data Center, Faster, Cooler, and Automated, to look into the future of data centers to get a glimpse of what that really means to all of us. It was a great conversation. Give it a listen. Shupovit, how are you today? Good, Jeff. How about you? I'm doing fabulous. See, this is this is the this is the pre-show. We should have, we should like charge extra and have like a pre-show and an after-show. Oh wait, we're not charging anything. This is free. Well, maybe the main show is free, but we can charge people for the pre-show where we have our fascinating conversations about like I don't know the weather, music. What else do you have on your mind? <laughs> Absolutely. You know what? I like the way you're thinking. I'm going to bring that up as a business case. <laughs> All right. Welcome, everybody. How are you doing? Uh, let's go ahead and, and uh, uh, start to the, the presentation for today. Um, I want to say right off the bat that, um, uh, you know, Mateo, if you would go ahead and put the slide deck up, up on the screen, we'll go ahead and start from there. Perfecto. Everybody, welcome. Welcome. This is the sixth, I believe, in our Submer webinar series. We talk about everything from everything infrastructure related, from from you know from where the hardware is made all the way until uh, you know how it gets delivered to people and everything in between. That's what we do. It's going to be a great session today, and I want to welcome you to this sixth episode of our webinar. Um, uh, go ahead and advance to the next slide. I want to introduce myself real quick. Uh, my name is Jeff Hardy. Um, I am uh, uh, here to do the content and marketing and messaging and media for Submer. Normally, the smiling face you'd see here would be my brother from uh, from Ireland, the uh, amazing Dearwood Daltoon. His information is below my name. So if you have any questions about Submer products or services or partnerships or things of that nature, Dearwood is the guy to talk to, and he's uh, he's he's a he's a brilliant fellow. So so uh, so I encourage you to reach out if you can. Um, also, uh, we have uh, today running the engineering deck, Matteo Mezzanate in the summer offices. You actually are fortunate enough. Matteo is in Barcelona, Spain. Our speaker Shupovit is in is in is in uh, San Francisco. I'm sitting here in the middle of Nebraska, so we are extended out in the cloud. We are all in the cloud together, and that's that's kind of a fun place to be. Um, I want to say that uh, on the next slide, we talk about how I want you to subscribe to this YouTube channel. Um, subscribe to all those things. And something else is coming up. Believe it or not, we're starting the uh, Submer podcasts, and we've already got several in the can, so be looking for a way to subscribe. You'll be able to listen to our content, our webinar content, and uh, also additional content that we're planning um, on your headphones while you're exercising and doing other things as well. So that said, allow me to take a moment and introduce, uh, well, before I say that, we have a, uh, back up. We've reserved time at the end for questions and answers, right? And you can feed questions in any which way you want to. If you're watching us on the live stream on YouTube, there should be a comment bar over there on the, on the right-hand side where you can ask questions. We're going to save all those for the end, and uh, we'll be feeding questions to Shubovet after the after the uh, main body of the webinar is over. And uh, we also have other channels, people feeding us questions back and forth. So there'll be a time. We'll be saving time for all that in the end. Don't be shy. Jump in and join the conversation. It's always a good thing. 
That said, let me take a, a moment and introduce our speaker of the day. Our speaker of the day, his name is Shupavit Ghosh, and he is the managing director of the Computer Infrastructure Research Center, that's the acronym CIRC at McMaster University. Um, you know, this facility, it's only one of three research and development centers that focuses on data center and infrastructure in the world. It's the home to the Great Canadian Data Center Symposium, which uh, I'm going to ask Shupavit at some point about that because they just had their big annual event. Uh, Dr. Ghosh brings a diverse background in research and technology commercialization that spans everything from engineering through life sciences, material sciences, chemistry, and applied physics. And uh, that means he's probably smarter than all of us. He's also experienced and passionate speaker. He has a PhD in engineering mechanics from Virginia Tech, it's a good school, and a BE in mechanical engineering from Javapur University, and I'm sure I did not pronounce that correctly. But Shupavit, welcome. Is there anything that I missed? I mean, you have a great bio there. Is there anything I missed in that that you wanna add? Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for the uh, kind introduction. And uh, thank you for saying my name correctly. That's very rare in this world. <laughs> Uh, but I think you uh, did pretty much ev uh, everything and uh, uh, projected uh, 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 even more. I'm not as smart as you think. I just know how to make myself look smart. Uh, uh, just a little bit. So, uh, 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 like, uh, I started CERC about uh, three years ago uh, now. It's uh, uh, I take pride in the fact that it's one of very few research facilities in the world on data centers. And we also take pride in the fact that we are partnered with a number of companies in this venture. Uh, so yeah, perfect uh, slide for that. Uh, so I brag about these things, but we are the only research center in Canada, uh, I guess, uh, that has sell produced selling products within the first year of operations. We're about, uh, we're almost three years old. Uh, we're a little more than 35 people right now. Uh, the way this center is built is uh, a new, uh, I would say, experimental model of industry-university collaboration where we hold hands with our industry partners all the way from conceptualization to commercialization, which goes all the way from doing customer discovery, uh, 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 customer feedback, uh, some market studies, et cetera, hand-in-hand uh, -hand with the research and development uh, uh, going all the way from uh, like uh, if you're speaking in terms of TRL as a metric, it goes all the way from TRL one uh, out into uh, the, the mature stage where we help, especially if it's a hardware product, we would help our partners do uh, some the, uh, small uh, manufacturing rounds, help them figure out supply chain, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. If it's software, we could go through through our network of partners, several different um, like beta tests. Uh, so on and so forth. Uh, so uh, that's just me doing my uh, shameless self-promotion. You know, Shubhavit, if, if I may, you know, you used an acronym, TRL. You know, uh, some, some people know what that means. What is TRL? You talk about taking people from the TRL round forward. Uh, so TRL, or uh, uh, the acronym is, uh, stands for Technology Readiness Level. I think it came from NASA way back when. It's sort of a uh, universal metric for where a technology is in terms of its uh, uh, realization or manifestation into like real life. Uh, so TRL1 stands for, I think, just an idea, uh, like something you're thinking about. TRL2 is you have put some meat into it. TRL3 is you're actively doing research and development. 
making these numbers on the fly, you have to look up. Uh, there's a Wikipedia page, I'm sure, on TRL. So if, uh, if you want to look that up, all the way up to, I think, TRL 10 means the product has been commercialized and launched. So it's just a few numbers that are somewhat universally accepted in terms of measuring where a technology is in the, is progress from someone's head as an idea to being out there in the real world. Excellent. You know, and you know, why don't we show the slide? You, you've uh, you've done quite a few projects, and you have a bunch of partners and sponsors for Circ. Um, you know, uh, tell us a little bit about those. So. Uh, uh, all these uh, partners that you see on the left side of the screen uh, are actively engaged or have been actively engaged with us in developing a product or doing a product development exercise for them. Uh, as you can see, it's very, very diverse. Uh, uh, our niche has always been in the uh, computing infrastructure side of a product that they're trying to develop. And it can be either hardware or software. So. Uh, uh, you can pick any examples. I don't want to pick uh, specific uh, companies out of here, but uh, uh, we have done uh, uh, like a micro data center for edge deployment. We have done a lot of work for telecommunications providers, especially in their NOC design and monitoring systems. We have done work for cable modem system, uh, manufacturing companies where they where we have built software for them that looks as the, at the physical plant, uh, especially like a, a, a DOCSIS network in real time, uh, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, the right side of this slide are our sponsors in terms of like people who help us run the Great Canadian Data Center Symposium or are kind enough to make donations to our cause. Uh, the Great Canadian Data Center Symposium, GCDCS, we just did uh, the 2019 version of it, which was, uh, the second uh, annual GCDCS. Uh, it was June 19th and 20th in the same building where we are located in Hamilton, Ontario. It has turned out to within a year uh, to be uh, uh, one of the largest data centers conferences in Canada and has drawn um, like uh, an audience from all over the world this year, uh, mainly because we have gained this reputation where we're focused on innovation as opposed to state of the art. So, um, um, most data center conferences are uh, geared around what's available right now, what's happening right now, best practices. We try to focus and curate an audience around what's going to happen five years from now, 10 years from now. Uh, and uh, apparently people like to talk about that. I do. And, and that is a perfect segue to our next slide, right? Yep. So we're going to talk about the future. You know, if it, so so where where, you, where Cirque is focusing, you know, you said from 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 TRL one right uh, up forward. So there's things that are just in the idea phase, just in the product development phase, and the conceptualize and science stage. You're seeing all that stuff in real time, so that kind of makes you a good guy to talk to for the future, right? Yep, and I, I'm also a good guy to talk to about anything Doctor Who. I've probably watched <laughs> every single episode out there. Uh, now, Cirque is not as good as the TARDIS in terms of uh, you know, uh, the span of uh, time that we can travel. But uh, you know, uh, Cirque uh, on the outside is bigger and on the inside is smaller. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So, you know, without further ado, you know, why don't you just launch into it? I want you to take the realm. I'll, I'll chime in if, 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 I, if I can't help myself. But people are here to, to hear you speak. So, so. So tell us, so give it, first of all, tell us what we should be cautious about. 
Absolutely. So this is just what the lawyers make say. Uh, well, what the rest of this presentation is forward-looking uh, statements. It's uh, me trying to uh, predict the future while me and my colleagues trying to predict the future. So don't take uh, this uh, at face value. Like this is this is speculation. Some of them is educated speculation, educated guesses. The others are pure speculation. Um, the, 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 that's basically uh, uh, it. <laughs> Wonderful. And and because of the parental advisory, at some point at the end, you'll break into some gangster rap, I believe. Uh, yeah, that's the plan. But um, <laughs> I think off at that point, as he had already warned us. All right. So let's let's go ahead and jump into it. Cool. So uh, uh, to get into what data centers are going to look like 30 years from now, 20 years from now, 10 years from basically in the future, we have to look at where the internet is going. And that's where I always like to start. So uh, it, in this particular graph, if you look at the lower left-hand corner, is kind of where we started uh, like 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, uh, applications like email, simple websites, you can uh, uh, tolerate a low bandwidth and a low latency. But as you move towards uh, more modern applications, what you would see is a general trend that the bandwidth requirement and the compute requirement, uh, the both uh, two of them kind of go hand in hand, keep going up. At the same time, the latency tolerance keeps going down. So especially if you want to focus uh, right up the 10 millisecond line, like uh, gaming, online gaming, uh, virtual reality, and then autonomous driving or other smart city application, industrial robotics, and very science fiction stuff like robotic surgery, um, you're looking at very low latency. And very high bandwidth. So you have what what we're looking for, like where the internet is going is we need lots and lots of data and compute, and we need it faster. So we're I guess we are getting uh, greedy. And uh, so if we can go on to the next slide, uh, 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 we're basically getting uh, we want more and we want it faster. We're getting greedy in, uh, on both counts. So. To translate, what if we want more compute and more bandwidth, what we need to do is reduce the cost of compute. Uh, so make uh, computing cheaper, make, band, make bandwidth cheaper. And at the same time, if we want it faster, we kind of need compute. We, we need really good uh, networks, yes. But uh, after a particular limit, as uh, I'll talk about uh, towards the latter half of the of this presentation, we need compute to be located very, very close to the end user. So what we call the edge. Uh, so uh, uh, if you could go to the next slide, please. Uh, so let's first look at the cost, uh, which is uh, 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 like uh, one of the main uh, drivers in having more compute and more uh, available to us. We have to somehow uh, make computing cost less than what it does right now. So where does the money go in a data center? Now, this is a Cisco white paper that did a very good uh, the, um, survey of this. And what I really like about this is a side-by-side -side comparison of uh, servers with the facilities. So servers, they assume, have a three-year uh, life or amortization um, the, on the power and cooling infrastructure. It's OPEX. So you're basically converting CAPEX into OPEX and comparing them side-by-side. What you notice is more than half of the money goes into the actual servers, which is the cost of uh, compute or IT, as uh, uh, some data center uh, folks like to call it. And the rest, 
less than half is on the facility side. So there's a always a, a cultural divide or like a, a, a generally accepted divide between the IT and facility side. Uh, what's interesting to note here is about half and half goes towards IT or facilities. Uh, 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 can we uh, go to the next one, please? Uh, so, um, yeah, this one. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so, um, uh, if you so, let's start with the cost of compute. Uh, uh, what uh, we have, uh, like traditionally, we have had a lot of commodity servers out there, which have like you know single socket motherboards, dual socket motherboards, uh, four socket motherboards. Basically, you're increasing the number of CPUs. But about ten years ago. Uh, people started figuring out, hey, we can use GPUs to do compute. Uh, at that point, it wasn't exactly the most cost efficient. But this particular study shows uh, that uh, uh, it's a, a very nice comparison of how uh, uh, GPUs kind of reduce the cost of compute. So this is for, uh, I, uh, I like this metric a lot. It's uh, dollars per uh, uh, floating point operations per second, which is like a way of measuring Compute and this is comparing, I think, uh, the Intel Xeon uh, CPU with the NVIDIA Tesla Kia uh, from about uh, like the mid mid two thousands or so. Uh, it clearly shows that on the capex side of computing. So if you're buying a server, if you add GPUs uh, to your server, the amount of number like pure number crunching that you can do is about a quarter when you use one GPU per CPU to accelerate this, uh, that computation. And uh, now this note is for uh, double precision uh, ca uh, calculations. If you go on to single precision, I believe the number is even better. Um, yeah, so uh, if we uh, move on to the next one, this kind of, uh, there's another um, really good example which shows uh, like, uh, just like compute, let's look, focus on the other 50%, which is the liquid cooling, uh, uh, part, so the cooling part. Uh, there, On the CapEx side, there's a common misconception that uh, liquid cooling is very, very expensive to install. And I get that in some places where you're locked into a particular type of cooling uh, infrastructure and you have been for like a decade uh, ripping everything out and installing liquid cooling is kind of expensive. But um, some studies clearly show that... Uh, Especially if you're doing a greenfield facility, uh, uh, like installing liquid cooling is almost the same cost. Like uh, this is a very ideal scenario, but it's uh, it's uh, liquid cooling is often cheaper uh, than high density air cooling. Uh, so uh, and this this particular study uh, and I, I note again this is a very ideal study, but it shows it's thirty four percent. Now, uh, the links of all of these studies are uh, at the bottom if you want to take a look at that. Uh, so uh, uh, that being said, uh, like, uh, uh, so can we move on to the next one? So uh, those were the two main uh, observations that I have about uh, the uh, capital expenditures uh, to make computing cheaper. So from those, I guess I could make the projection that uh, you know, but we're probably going to use GPUs a lot more, maybe even more application-specific uh, ICs uh, uh, or other kinds of uh, uh, computing chip design. And we're probably going to use a lot of liquid cooling. Now let's take a little bit of a look on uh, the sure. OPEX. Now, now let, let me, let, this, this is an interesting thing, and I, I want to linger on that point because I think it's a really important point, right? 
So, so you know, based upon you know what you the information you've looked at, the studies you've looked at, there's a strong inference that on on the pure opex side, you know, uh, we know that power consumption is huge, and that's where you're going. But you're inferring on the capex side that if you start thinking about liquid cooling of some sort from 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 the beginning, if you start in the front end of it, that the capex costs are very close, similar, or within a margin of error. Is that a good way of saying it? Uh, yeah, I, I guess uh, realistically, it's within the margin of error right now. Excellent. Okay, good. Please, thanks for the clarification. <laughs> uh, now that's uh, again the caveat is it's for uh, for greenfield construction. Right. Uh, if you're, if you're uh, looking at uh, data centers that exist already, it's uh, kind of expensive, especially the co if you factor in the cost of downtime associated with like ripping out something that already exists and putting something new. Uh, but uh, hey, uh, 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 moving on, let's look at the power consumption. So this is, uh, uh, if you could go back to the previous one for a second. So if you look at this, uh, uh, particular, uh, uh, these are approximate numbers of where the energy goes within a data center. Uh, uh, so I'm tracking 100 kilowatts of energy coming into a data center. About a third of that goes to powering a chiller plant. Uh, about 5% uh, goes into air handlers. So uh, uh, if you look at it, uh, often uh, 100 kilowatts, about 40 kilowatts or so, almost 40 kilowatts is going into cooling that place down. Uh, the liquid cooling solves a lot of this problem. Now, uh, lights, electrical losses, these are kind of small compared to many of the other things. The other main culprit in this big overhead is the idle IT equipment. So I'm going to touch on that uh, as well. These are, the, so the main three, uh, main two areas of uh, saving energy in a data center, uh, which would reduce the cost of compute, would be to reduce the cost of cooling and to reduce idle IT equipment uh, that's sitting in a data center uh, typically. Uh, um, so let's move on to the next one. Um, uh, so let's first start with the cooling side. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, Jeff, like you were talking about, uh, liquid cooling is uh, somewhat cheaper to install, but the energy benefits that is ha it has is ridiculously uh, better than air cooling. So this uh, is numbers I've cobbled together from, uh, I think, a couple of white papers uh, here and there, some analysis on our side. Uh, what this shows is, uh, especially if you look at that uh, uh, picture on, on the top, that's uh, direct on chip liquid cooling. It, I believe it's a company called RSC. Uh, they have a show, they show that under ideal situations uh, in a 10 megawatt data center, uh, well, but not 10 megawatt IT, it's about, I think, 6 megawatt IT. Uh, uh, the, they have 3.4 megawatts uh, if they switch to direct-to-chip liquid cooling. Uh, when you look at uh, the same data center, but uh, if you're looking at uh, comparison of the various uh, cooling technologies available out there for the same uh, uh, 10 megawatt data center, I think, uh, the cost of cooling per, per year if you had like the more traditional perimeter crack gallery or craw gallery, you're looking at spending more than a million bucks a year, like one and a half million dollars a year. Whereas if you use uh, even some uh, 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 something close to liquid cooling, like uh, 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 rear door uh, exchanges, passive liquid cool doors, uh, which is about uh, uh, two thirds of the way down, you're uh, basically cut this cost by a to a third. And if you go all the way to immersion liquid cooling, which is probably 
it's somewhat polarizing in the industry today, but by far the cheapest, you're probably looking at spending only about $25,000, $30,000 a year versus $1.4 million. So the uh, cost, especially uh, if you uh, bring it down to the dollars and cents, uh, it's just ridiculously in favor of using uh, liquid cooling. And now, off, the top, uh, off the top of my head, that's about 2.2%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, please. I d- didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. Yeah, it's actually uh, less than 2.2%. I think it's because uh, 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 2% would be about 28,000. Uh, but uh, again, uh, b- this kind of uh, like immersion liquid cooling only works in certain scenarios. So that was my caveat. Uh, it uh, uh, and uh, that is why immersion liquid cooling is still kind of polarizing. Uh, some people love it, some people hate it, some people want nothing to do with it. But the thing is, we can afford to have that uh, conversation now. But uh, ten years down the line, when you need lots and lots of compute, uh, uh, I don't think that would be an argument anymore. You either use this kind of liquid cooling, or you're kind of obliterated by uh, uh, competition who's who has the cost advantage of being less than two percent of what you're spending on your cooling? Well, you, you can you can imagine that uh, we're rather fond of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Please. So uh, the the, oh, you, the, the yeah. So we, you talked about the different types, and you were showing the different types of liquid cooling. And 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 I thought that it would just be a moment. We inserted a couple slides here because some people are familiar with the different types of liquid cooling, some people aren't. So we thought we'd just take a moment, right, and talk about what the different basic technologies there are. And if, and if you look at, uh, uh, no, go back, keep go back again, thank you, Matteo. The, the top image there is what's called a cold plate, right? And this is a copper or highly conductive metal plate that you just kind of, you bolt on the top of your CPUs and GPUs and you basically run copper pipe like you would run copper pipe through, uh, you know, through a bathroom, right? And 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 attach it to the pipe plate. It circles through and then goes back out, right? It removes the heat that way. And then the next picture down you see is an actual image of an in rack radiator. This is another type of cooling where you uh, you actually basically put an air conditioning unit in the rack itself, right? So the the air conditioning unit itself is is air cooled. Can be either single phase or dual phase. Uh, cooled in that way. Single phase means that it never changes from gas to to liquid and back again. You know, um, dual phase means that it's cut, it, it it releases its heat by converting itself to a gas. But and then these units are are stacked up inside the conventional racks with uh, with alongside the servers. Now we thought it'd be kind of interesting because a lot of people when we talk about immersion cooling, we talk about what that is, right? And, you know, it, it, we, I, we just took a, a quick snippet of a video, you know, from, from one of our tanks. And let, let's, let's go and show that real quick. So, yeah. uh, well, just, uh, yeah, well, well, one of the things uh, uh, I should probably mention here is uh, historically, uh, and uh, this comes from my undergraduate training as a mechanical engineer, wherever there is a high heat density requirement, you kind of have to use something like immersion liquid cooling or convection liquid cooling. Think about your car. Uh, your car basically packs about 100 kilowatts into its engine, thereabouts, right? So how do you cool your car? You don't bl- blast air at it. You're basically blasting uh, glycol, uh, basically water glycol mixture through it. Uh, and 
then uh, give, uh, taking it out to a radiator. You don't need any refrigeration system to cool it. You just uh, pump lots and lots of water or like glycol water mixer to it. So that that that's a takeaway. Uh, so uh, if you look at computers today, uh, uh, where we are right now at the heat density, air cooling is still possible. But whenever the heat density goes up and it's bound to go up in the future, it has a uh, there is actually historical. Uh, uh, cases of where it was really, really high, especially if you look at the IBM uh, vector CPUs from back in the day, um, liquid cooling was the only option available. Uh, now, there are two things that can drive this. One is you kind of have to liquid use liquid cooling. The other is liquid cooling makes it ridiculously cheaper than anything else. Um, so uh, both of these are kind of necessary in the future because we'd need lots and lots of compute, and we would want that lots and lots of compute to be cheaper just to be uh, cost competitive, right? Uh, so I, uh, I think uh, where you're trying to go is uh, uh, this is uh, uh, either immersion or uh, direct-to-chip liquid cooling is kind of the way to go. Now, direct-to-chip chip liquid cooling has a small disadvantage in that, like, uh, you have to basically have a fluid circuitry in there where you have a cold plate made it to the CPU, the memory card, et cetera, but the rest of the server is not actively cooled by it. So there are a couple of products out there, uh, especially the ACET Tech. Uh, they have this thing, thing called ISAC or in-server air conditioning, which is basically uh, a cold, it's a hybrid system. It's a cold plate made it to the CPU with like fins on it that cool, that basically circulate air through the rest of the server and cool it there uh, uh, through that circulation. Or you could just uh, dip all your servers into a, uh, into a um, um, uh, dielectric fluid like you're talking about. Uh, which is uh, uh, like, so people sometimes, uh, like mechanical engineers like me, we love it because we know that's the most efficient way to cool something. But it's kind of polarizing when you take into account people who have traditionally uh, looked at uh, facilities being absolutely dry and impeccable. Now you're introducing a liquid that drips and can create a mess. So you need a mop to clean things up, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it, it, it's a, it, it requires a change in thinking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so what's interesting, and uh, I'm sorry I'm digressing a little bit from here, but uh, uh, what what's interesting is uh, right now data centers are built in a way where they undergo continuous maintenance and upkeep. So if you're handling servers that go into a data center and they're in a liquid, it makes it difficult. But in the future, 10, 15 years down the line, we'd probably have data centers which are what we call lights out data centers. So they they are basically manufactured at a factory, plugged in, and they run on their own for the rest of eternity. And that's when it's not as appalling anymore. Because think about like electrical transformers out there right now. They're actually all sitting in a, a, a mineral oil which keeps them cold. This is the same right. thing. Right. Yeah, the te the technology, the idea behind the technology has actually been used since the 1880s. <laughs> yeah, probably yeah. even before. <laughs> Excellent. Like, yeah, when you when 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 you're hot, uh, uh, back in the day, you'd probably go t uh, take a dip in a uh, the river or a lake or something, right? That's that's a motion liquid cooling. It is. You know, you know, you mentioned that you know the the lights out data center, and, and we've had we've had uh, pre uh, several of our previous webinar speakers have mentioned similar similar concepts, and that kind of aligns with our long term vision for for data centers too. Is that more and more, especially data centers at the edge, in remote locations and harsh environments, 
we see it needing to rely more and more upon automation and to be able to run on its own. Yeah, I'll actually touch upon that just a little bit uh, later in the presentation. Uh, so let's uh, get back into the slides sure. that I have. So, uh, uh, earlier, I was talking about uh, CPU versus GPU in terms of CapEx. Now let's look at the 20% of that pie chart, energy pie chart, uh, cost pie chart, which was energy. Turns out uh, GPUs are actually also way better than CPUs in terms of uh, flops per watt. So they can crunch a lot more numbers per uh, uh, each watt of energy that they consume. Um, and this is a comparison of uh, the, the uh, I think the NVIDIA Tesla K20 versus the Int, uh, Intel Xeon something something. Uh, so uh, it's an IEEE paper if uh, the, the reference is down below if uh, someone's interested in looking this up. Uh, it kind of shows for double precision uh, uh, GPU is about three times as efficient as a CPU from 2012. Uh, and GPUs are getting better and better. CPUs have kind of caught up, so uh, it's not like that the uh, 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 the ratio has gotten much better since then. It's still about uh, like three is to one uh, kind of a, a ratio, but um, uh, what this kind of projects is that we used to live in a realm where any sort of computing or number crunching was done by a CPU, but what uh, we have seen is uh, we, in the interest of saving money and uh, doing things faster or doing more things, we actually prefer designing a custom design chip. Uh, GPU was the most generic example of that, but then came around the Bitcoins and uh, the ASICs and the specific ICs that came with the Bitcoins, which were so much better than the CPUs at mining Bitcoin that it's not even cost efficient by far to mine Bitcoins on a CPU-based machine. Similar thing, uh, Google just came out with, uh, and I, I have a slide on that later uh, in this presentation, but Google came up with uh, the TPU or Tensor Processing Unit, which is like a uh, application-specific IC, uh, IC for doing TensorFlow type of workload. So machine learning, which is basically just multiplying tons and tons of matrices together. Uh, so they design an IC, um, they designed a chip that is specifically designed for doing exactly that. And that makes it cheaper, uh, not just in terms of cost of the chips. Now, cost of the chips when you're doing a low production run in a custom chip is probably low, uh, probably quite high, but um, uh, uh, it must have made the business case because uh, of how much of AI kind of workload they're doing right now. Uh, um, so moving on to the next one. Uh, uh, oh, this, this was a slide right next door. <laughs> so the, the um, picture on the left corner is basically the Google TPUs. This, this came out, I think, middle of uh, last year is when they came out with uh, this particular uh, 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 release. And what they show is clearly for this kind of density, I believe they have about 50 kW per rack over there. Uh, they don't. I don't think they have published that number, but if you uh, look at the power that's going into it, that's that would be my guess. And they decided to use com uh, liquid cooling. You can see the pipes go like the, uh, you know, taking a hot uh, coolant in and taking cold coolant out in a technology that's very similar to uh, uh, what... Uh, what you see in that um, uh, motherboard over there. Uh, the, so uh, this is a, uh, four sockets uh, with um, uh, you know, two coolant tubes coming in. And this is the direct-to-chip uh, liquid cooling over uh, over here right now. Uh, now, uh, uh, 
so if you look at the no, uh, sorry, that's uh, can you? Uh, I think I think you want to go back go back a slide again real quick. Is that what you like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah can you hold go on? back a slide? Sorry, I'm in a hotel room and housekeeping just kept knocking and knocking. <laughs> yeah. You understand? You're actually you're actually in San Francisco for for DCD, correct? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, DCD yeah. and other meetings. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so where I was going here is, um, uh, uh, you know, this uh, this particular uh, uh, graph on the right shows why do we need to go to these densities. So. Uh, sorry, where I was going is if you look at the picture on the left, it's very high densely packed servers altogether. They could have easily spread this out and cooled them uh, via air, but they chose to instead pack them as densely as they could and use liquid cooling. Uh, this uh, the one on the right kind of shows why, uh, uh, like the graph, because uh, uh, when you pack things closer, it, and not just because of the cost of real estate, for many other factors, uh, it's cheaper to pack things closer together. It could be the cost of like copper or other kinds of uh, interconnect between the various servers. It could be purely uh, uh, the cost of management because it's easier to uh, you know handle things that are densely packed together as opposed to spread out over like an entire facility. Like think about it. If if the Google TPUs are 50 kW per rack, and if you're going uh, at 5 kW per rack, uh, then each one of what's in one rack would be 10 racks. So what you see here, uh, that's like about 10 racks would basically be 100 racks. And now you're looking at an entire building, uh, well, uh, entire floor in a building that you need people to manage, you need to clean. There's like a big overhead with that. So right. and, that's yeah, an yeah, yeah, And just as a quick aside, you know, uh, and it's you know a little self-serving, but you know at summer we 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 kind of grasped onto this because immersion cooling actually allows you to achieve greater densities because you don't have to leave space for all the plumbing and stuff too. Uh, yeah. Is that correct? Uh, yep, very much so. Uh, yeah. but, but the uh, only caveat with that is uh, immersion cooling. Uh, sometimes, well, uh, most uh, uh, manifestations of immersion cooling is kind of in a tub where the servers are uh, like, uh, it's a horizontal rack as opposed to a vertical rack, right? So right. it's a little right. bit more spread out. You're not doing the most efficient uh, use of floor space possible. Now, uh, now there is an exception to this that, that I've saw, and uh, like uh, I saw in the industry, which I'm probably talking about one of your competitors here, but uh, there's a company called, uh, I believe, Isotope. Uh, it's a British company, I believe. Uh, they have a, a sealed uh, server with the coolant inside. Uh, now, uh, their limitation is, again, because they're a, a sealed server with the coolant inside, you kind of have to buy the server from them, mm -hmm. which uh, puts a damper on what you can use their technology for. But it's, it's the exact same thing, except it's uh, now you can vertically stack them. Right, right, and and and, and what you said is, cor is, is correct, except I'll just, I'll just give the caveat that uh, for, on, on this end, from you know, with the increased densities, you know, being able to take with with, immer with immersion cooling, you're allowed uh, not, you can use conventional hardware, but it also allows you to put CPUs and GPUs closer together, you know, with no fans, uh, uh, no wasted space, allowing for airflow. It allows the all the processors to be closer together. So in a a conventional, we call them you know our smart pods in the in the pod footprint, 
you can take and uh, actually put higher densities, uh, uh, even though even though you're not stacking vertically, you can get more density per square foot. And then if you add a second level mezzanine in the space, you don't lose your vertical space. So that yeah, um, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Like uh, especially the second level mezzanine. I've never seen that yet, but um, you know. But, uh, oh, it's, it's really oh, we have we've got some renderings. I, I'll make I'm making a note. I, I I should have sent you one of these drawings beforehand. I'll send I'll send you one of the one of the schematics. It's pretty cool. Yeah, um, no, that's that's actually a neat idea. Cool. Um, okay, now let's come into the topic of how uh, some of the other more uh, more experimental things. So so far, I've been talking about what's uh, kind of the state of the art. Now, this is a research that uh, we've been active on, this particular paper that referenced at the bottom. It's from uh, my colleagues at CERC. Uh, here we use purely uh, uh, software tools. Uh, we call EAWA stands for Energy Aware Workload Allocation uh, or Workload Assignment. Uh, what we're doing is using uh, some amount of learning from the past to figure out what kind of hardware or what uh, uh, what's a uh, physical uh, uh, server in a, uh, say, a group of servers in a data center or in a network of data, data centers can handle a particular type of job the best. And with that knowledge, if you do now uh, more intelligent workload distribution, which is easy to do when you're uh, using a hypervisor for uh, the, uh, you know, the, or uh, some kind of load balancing or you know, cont containerization where you can move the containers on the fly, um, uh, that's uh, uh, that's very easy to do. Uh, so using this kind of scheduling algorithm, uh, well, uh, a workload assignment algorithm that helps you just by shifting jobs around helps you save about a third uh, of the en uh, of the energy that goes into computing, which is uh, which is pretty neat. It's just software, just some logic that by shifting workloads can save you a lot of energy. Um, uh, so this is again something we'll probably see in the future to make computing cheaper and uh, uh, therefore having more com uh, being able to afford more compute. Um, right. So I think that kind of takes us to the next one. Using similarly the same kind of learning uh, or AI uh, uh, as uh, uh, people like to call it. Uh, I still find AI to be a bit of a buzzword, uh, catch-all kind of place, but. Uh, this is another piece of uh, research that we've been working on. Uh, it's a uh, system, the cooling control logic, like a control logic for cooling system, where instead of you know, relying on traditional PID control, what we decided to do was use uh, adaptive predictive control, uh, which is uh, really cool when you think about edge type deployment. So we built this for a cooling unit that would slide into a single rack deployment. Now, what happens in a single rack is it has a very low thermal inertia. So when uh, you go from an idle condition to a full load condition very quickly in, a, say, an edge deployment, uh, uh, with traditional cooling PID control, the temperature shoots up by a few degrees, and then the cooling ramps up because it senses the increase in uh, temperature and cools it back down. Now the graph on the right upper corner, it's a study from the Los Alamos National Laboratory, I believe, LAANL. What they show is, uh, and this is again, contrary to popular belief, it's not uh, running servers hotter that kill servers, it's actually temperature fluctuations. So the probability of a server failing at uh, uh, between 20 to 30, 
50 degrees uh, versus 30 to 41 degrees is roughly the same. Whereas if there is a higher coefficient of variation, that's what COV stands for, uh, uh, goes up from about uh, 2% to about 5%, the probability of failure of servers almost doubles. So uh, think about an edge deployment where you have a stack of servers sitting in a single rack somewhere in a, a neighborhood out there, say on a rooftop, base of a cell tower. Uh, this is stacked with, say, 50 kW of servers that are doing AI kind of workload. Uh, uh, modern servers uh, with Energy Star typic uh, typically have a, are very proportional, which means at idle conditions, they probably consume like 50 to 100 watts. And at full load, each server can ramp up to like a, a one kilowatt or 1.2 kilowatt. Uh, that basically means from being almost no heating, uh, uh, it suddenly turns into like, uh, you know, uh, like a gas burner. Uh, to, uh, to keep this thing cool, or basically to prevent temperature fluctuations in something that can change so rapidly, uh, uh, traditional PID control is not good enough. So this is a paper that's coming out. Uh, we haven't published this one yet. Uh, we filed a patent on this. Uh, uh, it's basically through adaptive predictive control, which is basically control based on learning from the past of the, about the environment and control also based on various other input factors, such as, uh, so this algorithm can talk to the PDUs uh, um, and other power systems. This control unit can talk to the hypervisor or uh, talk to uh, whatever is doing load balancing, containerization, et cetera. And it can uh, basically preemptively start cooling before something gets warmer. Uh, again, something um, uh, that is kind of futuristic right now, but it's a research project that we're working on, hopefully going to turn into a product. Hey, Shipovit, you know, uh, we, we want to save a few minutes for questions and answers. That's fascinating. But basically you're saying that just like you get more potholes in the street when the temperature changes a lot and you get fewer potholes when the temperature doesn't change much at all, it's the same thing as servers. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, so I'm going to start moving a little faster because I see we're running out of time here. Uh, so uh, uh, let's talk about edge compute. And uh, people talk about edge. This is, a, again, part of the future. Why do we need edge? I've been talking about uh, why we need specific types of uh, edge cooling a lot. And this is just like a funny graphic that shows we kind of uh, we're getting greedy. We want things faster. We want things right now. So if you run out of toilet paper, you kind of need it right now. So if we move on to the next one, now why do we need edge? If you look at the graph at the lower right corner, you see many of the applications to the right of uh, the one millisecond line are kind of emerging applications. They're real. We, we know we need them. But you can't really do that. Say you, you have your end user in New York City and you have a data center in Los Angeles, you can't do that just because of how fast uh, the speed of light is, like how, how, how fast light travels. Uh, assuming your latency associated with computing and networking is zero, uh, light would still take about 2.6 milliseconds to uh, bounce from New York City to Los Angeles and back. And uh, the, so what do we do now? we kind of have to have compute everywhere. We have to com have compute on device. We have to have compute basically in every street corner, maybe in everybody's uh, houses. And this, uh, so uh, uh, people sometimes uh, talk about, hey, the, there's enough compute in the cloud. Why do we need the edge? This is kind of why. Uh, so if we move on to the next one, uh, 
to make this edge work, what 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 we're going to see is, uh, you know, what we have right now is uh, the core model. We have a smaller number, a relatively smaller number of very large data centers, which basically house all the compute. But in the future, what we're looking towards is many, many, many tiny data centers spread all out. So to have a mission critical data center right now, you kind of need like a facilities guys to be there doing regular checks and balances, audits, uh, maintenance, et cetera, to keep it up and running. When you have like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of data centers within your net network, you can't really afford to do that. And that's where the lights out data center concept comes in. We kind of need to have something that top, that is entirely software controlled where like, uh, you, know, you don't need a facilities guy to be there. Uh, the facilities guy is basically a piece of software and everything associated with it is automated. So uh, what you do is you take tons and tons of data out of a micro data center that's serving your edge, uh, run this through algorithms that basically figure out what's going on with the data center uh, and take control decisions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, again, a research project we're kind of working on right now um, uh, in this area. Uh, uh, so uh, let's move on. Um, and uh, to make that work, what we have been lock, uh, looking at uh, is uh, using AI, or basically using uh, uh, specifically uh, data clustering algorithms to do fault prediction. So from a single data center, you can probably look at 100 different variables in real time and figure out if there is something wrong with it. Um, before there is an actual fault or outage. Uh, and uh, uh, so that you don't need your facilities uh, people to do regular maintenance or regular inspections or audits. Your software kind of tells you when there is something funny. Uh, and uh, and uh, that kind of triggers an uh, action from your main maintenance group. So uh, to do that, we'd look at va variables that people probably don't even think about, like uh, you know, vibration sensors are somewhat traditional. Like we look at temperature, pressure, humidity, uh, we look at uh, network pipes, we look at uh, electrical um, out uh, outputs, but we also do very high frequency sampling of the power lines, like the, the AC power lines going in. We lo look at uh, noise information. Basically, we have microphones within the micro data center, et cetera, et cetera. Now, again, this is a research project. Uh, we've been working on it for about a year now. Uh, we'll see where we land in another year. Excellent. Okay, so now I'm going to sum up, Jeff, and then we can start the question. So what would the data center of 2030 be like? Uh, it's uh, probably going to be small. Like, there's still going to be the warehouse scale cloud data centers. Don't get me wrong. That's where the bulk of our compute would be. But what would be new would be the small one or two rack systems that form the edge. There'll be a lot of heterogeneity in computing and storage equipment that's optimized. So you'll have ASICs for Bitcoin, you'll have like TPUs for uh, AI workload, you'll have quantum computing for quantum annealing from uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you'll have the standard general purpose CPUs. Uh, we'll have a lot more fault tolerance um, um, uh, systems for power and cooling so that a manual maintenance and upkeep becomes a thing of the past. And uh, the usual stuff, uh, you know, software-defined everything. Um, uh, so a key highlight is, uh, you know, using the software-defined uh, environment, you can uh, take out a lot of the redundancies, et cetera. And, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, but it will be probably be very, very high density. 100 kilowatt is just a speculation. I don't know what the actual number would be. 
uh, so on and so forth. But the last bullet point kind of hits it all. What we would need to do is from a single pane of glass, be able to manage what I call a constellation of data centers. So think about your enterprise application probably now requires you to be at the edge for, and you have like 100,000 data centers all over the world. You can't possibly manage that uh, unless you have like a single control panel that has under the covers has all sorts of algorithms automating different kinds of functions and gives you only the important uh, information on like a uh, single screen. So you're not like, um, you know, not a lot of people can basically uh, fly a 747. Uh, you kind of need to uh, dumb it down to a point where there's like two buttons to press. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much, Shibhavita. That was, that, was, that was a great presentation. I appreciate it. I've got a couple of questions. We're running low on time, so I'm going to grab it real quick. The first question is kind of uh, is related to who's doing it well now. Is there a country or region that you see taking the lead uh, that's going towards your vision of the future data center? Uh, that's an excellent question, and there's no way I can answer this question without making some people mad. But. Uh, well, we won't tell anybody this. We're just live streaming to a group of your closest friends. Yeah. Uh, so uh, here's the thing. I see a lot more uh, openness and advancement happening in Europe than in North America right now, especially in adoption of liquid cooling, uh, purely adoption of economization, uh, open, like uh, the government-funded research projects that look at energy efficiencies and bring out actually usable software that you can use to design stuff, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so not a country specifically, but uh, Europe in general is doing a lot more than the rest of the world. Perfect. Um, the next question is, uh, you, you know, you talked about the advancements of uh, G GPUs and CPUs. We're leaning towards GPUs. Do you, uh, do you anticipate uh, that GPUs are going to get even faster or are we, reach are we reaching truly a functional limit? Um, that's an excellent question. I think uh, uh, I think uh, it would probably get a little faster with time. But what would be the most remarkable advancement would be uh, uh, chips that are more application specific, like uh, you know the Google TPU as an example. That's a chip designed to do uh, uh, machine learning workload. You'd probably see uh, very, very uh, application-specific CPUs uh, coming out. Now, I have a speculation. You know, AMD came out with the concept of the chiplets, which is basically instead of having a big chip, you have a modular system where you put smaller chiplets to make up your main chip. Uh, now, I don't know if they have it yet, but they would probably come up with uh, in the future more and more application-specific chiplets that go onto the module. Uh, Intel's uh, gonna come back to the table soon. They uh, were lucky enough to get uh, the creator of all of this recently joined them. So it will be interesting to see what comes out of Intel in the next year or so. You know, and we we are we are running out of time. So I, I you know, Shupavit, First of all, thank you so much for your time. Um, let me see here what we have here. Our next events. Um, as you know, we're going to be, our, our summer team is going to be at the uh, DCD, and I hope you have a chance, Shupavit, to hook up with our team on the ground there in San Francisco. There's lots of other things that we have going on there. Uh, these are the OCP Regional Summit in Amsterdam is coming up. These are some of the other things, and definitely Supercomputing 2019 in Denver. That's going to be an amazing event, and we're and summer is coming big. Are you, are you going to be at Supercomputing 2019? Uh, yep, I intend to. 
Wonderful. It's going to be great. I'm, I'm going to try to get there myself if I can. Hope to see you there. Um, uh, that's it. I think that we're going to go ahead and, and wrap it up now. Is there anything else we need to cover here? I think that's the end. Make sure you subscribe. Go Subscribe to this YouTube channel. Um, go to our website. Subscribe to our, uh, our, our social media feeds. We'll keep you informed of all the latest stuff. Subscribe to our blog. Make sure you monitor the RSS feed. We're always posting articles. And our new podcast is coming up, so keep your eyes peeled for that. Shupovit, I can't thank you enough. It's been great having you here. I thank you for your time. You're traveling in a hotel, and it's been great having you. Oh, thank you so much, Jeff, and thank you, everybody, for listening and tuning in. Wonderful. Look forward to seeing you all next time. Thanks. Bye for now. I want to thank Shupovic Gosh for all of his time. It was a great conversation. As usual, you can find a copy of the slide deck and a link to the video that actually recorded this webinar on our summer.com page. That's it for this time. See you soon.